a look at the scripture passage for today. Um, it's in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And this is the final message in our, our series on why believe. Um, I didn't look. There's a black Bible in front of you. So some of you grew up in churches where you did sword drills. That may be a thing of the distant past. I don't know. But if you find John chapter 20 in that pew Bible that's in front of you, and you have the courage to say the page number, then others will know where it is if they have been unable to find it. 1074. 1074. In my classroom, I give smarties out when people give good answers. But I don't have any with me. Kevin, so you won't get it. Sorry. I'll try to remember that. 1074, turn, turn there and you can follow along. So this is the final message in the series of Why Believe. First, we said what, we asked why believe in God. Uh, second, why believe in truth? Is there really a truth out there, an absolute objective truth? And then last week, we asked why Christianity? Why believe in Christianity? Of all the world religions who say that they have the answer, why Christianity? So uh, today, we're going to ask a little bit of a different question. Can I believe and still have doubts? What if, for example, you've been listening and you're sort of there but not quite and you still have remaining doubts? Can you still believe? Or even if you're uh, consider yourself a believer but you're wrestling with some of these things, can you still believe and have doubts? That's the idea. So uh, here we are, John chapter 20. Here's, here's the text. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. This is, of course, after Jesus had risen from the dead. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came. And stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God. Well, Ryan Zhang was slated to preach today. Ryan's a friend of ours on staff at a sister church. Um, uh, he was going to deal with this last topic. Ryan, as some of you know, grew up in, in China. And uh, by virtue of that cultural context, when he moved to the United States in his teens, he had not been exposed to belief in God. Uh, so Ryan naturally went through the process of asking some questions uh, and working through uh, doubts like we all have uh, and now is a, a follower of Jesus. Uh, the reason Ryan isn't here is because he went with his father back to China. His father was diagnosed with lung cancer, not, not a smoker, uh, within the past year. And his health has been kind of uh, off and on, but they thought he was healthy enough to go back to China to visit family. So he and Ryan traveled there. While he, they were in China, his dad's health took a, a decline. They recommended that he stay there and get treatment, but he said, I want to go back home. And a half an hour onto the flight, his dad passed away uh, right next to him, which is uh, terrible. 
Uh, and so Ryan texted me and said, I can't make it. Uh, obviously, his dad's funeral was, was yesterday. I was hoping to go, but it had something else going on. Um, so that's why Ryan's not here. And so please lift him up, uh, Ryan Zhang. Uh, to got his you know, young son, Edmund. And I can't imagine the trauma of the experience, to be honest with you. It's really kind of weighed me down heavily to think of, just put myself into that moment and experience the, the sadness and the difficulty of it. And Ryan's a person of faith. Uh, my guess is there are moments in the past you know, week and a half when he's wrestled with God's justice and God's goodness and God's fairness. And you know, a lot of times when we're, life is going well, it's easy to kind of think, yes, I've got faith. And in those moments when something difficult happens, you say, where, where are you, God, in this? You know, where, where are you now? Are you good? Are you fair? Are you kind? Are you in control of everything? Can you be, believe and ask those questions? Can you believe and still have doubts? And the short answer is yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, I would suggest, if you're a student of the Bible, that part of this walk of faith with God is him leveraging the doubts and finding you in the midst of those. That that's often where we find God at work. And we can overcome those for sure. But it's okay to have them. But how do we interact with that? What, what do we do with all that? If, um, if you're a skeptic, maybe, somebody who, by, by skeptic, I simply mean you're skeptical. You're kind of unsure. You're not fully committed to what the Bible says, that it's true, that that even God exists or that Christianity is the way or that Christ is who he says he is. And you've got doubts maybe about all of that. Um, I would suggest that one of the things that you can do this morning is doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Now, th this isn't my thinking, and I've, I've been using Tim Keller quite a bit for this series, and I want to recommend to you, if you have an interest, if you're kind of a reader, if you're somebody who wants to dig into this a little bit more, because there's just a limited scope of presentation on a Sunday morning like this, that perhaps you entertain the thought of get, getting uh, one of two books. Uh, in 2008, Tim, Tim Keller published The Reason for God, and then in 2016, Making Sense of God. And I've tried to digest some of that material as well. The reason I think he's, he's, uh, he's helpful is because he's writing to our contemporary era. He's a pastor in Manhattan where there are a lot of people who are skeptics. He does a good job, I think, of on the scholarship level of uh, both historically and in contemporary society, dialoguing on sort of an intellectual level with these issues. But he's a pastor at heart. So he writes in a very accessible way and also in a way that applies kind of life, uh, faith in life right now. Um, and the other book I've used is C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, sort of an old classic. Uh, a little bit of Ravi Zacharias, Jesus Among Other Gods, have been kind of my main go-tos, along with just own thought, my own thoughts as well. Uh, but because Tim Keller pastors a place where a lot of skeptics come, he dialogues with them. And one of his friends who did come to faith in Christ said, my process of coming here was to doubt my doubts. And what in the world does that even mean? Well, this is, I'll just read a couple examples of how he did that. So this man said, here's all my doubts about whether or not this is really true. And he wrote them down. One of them was, for example, one of the reasons he doubted was because he was witnessing a good and faithful believer who suffered horribly for no good reason. 
So what do you do when you see somebody who's suffering, who seems to be, you know, walking with God? How do you explain that? His, his doubt was, at least his understanding was, if they were really believing in God, why would they suffer? That was a doubt that he had. So this man is sharing with Tim Keller how he worked through that. This doubt stems from a belief that if we human beings can't discern a sufficient reason for an act of God, then there can't be any. My friend came to realize this assumed that if there was an infinite God, a finite mind should be able to evaluate his motives and plans. He asked himself how reasonable it was to believe that, to have such confidence in his own insight, and the doubt began to erode. So he's saying, look, given that there's an infinite God, we should expect not to be able to answer all of these things. So his doubt didn't seem so strong anymore. Another one was witnessing corruption or hypocrisy in a religious institution. Do you think there's a lot of people that doubt whether God's real and the Christian faith is really valid with that? Look at all the hypocrites in the church. I hear that, and it's an understandable doubt. So, for example, he says, this might be the most warranted basis for doubting the truth of a particular faith. But my friend realized that the moral standards he was using to judge hypocritical believers came mainly from Christianity itself. The worst thing I could say about Christians was that they weren't being Christian enough. But why should they be if Christianity wasn't true at all? So he's just wondering, like, why am I holding them to a standard that would only exist if, in fact, what they believed was true? I know this is all kind of confusing if you don't see it, but just one, one, one other example. He says, realizing the basic unfairness of the doctrines of hell and salvation. That's just a doubt. It seems unfair. This doubt, my friend said, largely came from the underlying beliefs of his culture. He had a Chinese friend who did not believe in God, but who said that if he existed, God certainly would have a right to judge people as he saw fit. He then realized his doubt about hell was based on a very Western, democratic, individualistic mindset that most other people in the world did not share. To insist that the universe be run like a Western democracy was actually a very ethnocentric point of view, <laughs> he told me. So just an, uh, doubt your doubts. If you have those doubts, then why, are they really sufficient, in other words? That's point one. I only have four points this morning. And the next one's this. Belief may minimize, clarify, or erase your doubts. And this is where I'm kind of inviting you to come into to our house and walk around and say even a tiny yes to Jesus. And when you do that, some of your doubts may be put in proper context. You know, we made a reference here, Diane did, to uh, back-to-back and some trips, you know, we're taking to, to Haiti, but when we went to Mazatlan with them a couple of years ago, we had some three generations of Hindus who came on the trip with us. Um, a grandfather, you know, his daughter, and then her kids as well. Now, back-to-back is a Christian ministry, and part of the trip, which is really wonderful, is you have a devotional material that they give you time for, and they use the Bible, and they talk about, you know, what faith looks like, and how do you apply it. So we have people who say we're Hindu coming on a trip with us to spend time with Jesus in morning devotions. And that very first day, I, 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 I told them, and just as a team as well, and I acknowledged the fact, and we were, we were grateful that they were there. And I said, you know, if you want to picture, like, all the world religions, like, um, in a community on different, different streets, 
you know, you got the, the street here, Hinduism, or Islam, or uh, Judaism, uh, atheism, narcissism, hedonism, <laughs> whatever, whatever faith system, because everybody has a faith system. You just don't realize you do. Secularism, whatever the case may be. You are choosing to spend a time on our block and to come into our house right now, this Christian faith, and spend time with Jesus. And I just wanted to acknowledge to them how grateful I was that they were doing that. But the opportunity as well, just to get a glimpse and a look at what it looks like to walk with this person that we call Christ and to be able to listen. I was very grateful they were willing to do that. They knew sort of what they were getting into. But I wanted to acknowledge the, the value of spending time there and considering those things. You know, when we first talked about this, we had evidentialism and classical apologetics with all these different arguments. And one of them was presup, right? Presuppositionalism, which basically just says if you take the Bible at value, it appears to be a cohesive, coherent way to explain the world. It works, and we believe it works because it's true. Not it's true because it works. It works because it's true. And so a presuppositionalist will look at these world systems and say, do they fit together? Do they explain everything? So in a sense, just saying, come on into the house and try it out. And that's the invitation I would offer to you if you're sort of on the fence and don't understand all this stuff. Come on in. The water's warm. <laughs> Actually, sometimes it feels pretty cold. But, it, you know, it, come in. It's all right. It's okay to, to belong before you believe. This is what Jesus seemed to do with a lot of people. Come. You who are weird, come to me. I'll give you. You can come and belong. Even before you've got this all figured out. That's part of the invitation, I think, of Scripture. And sometimes when you do that, you come and live in this house for a little while, your doubts may be minimized. They may still be there, but they just don't seem as big. You know what it's like going back to your elementary school? For those of you who are old enough to remember this, or ever go back, do you remember how big the desks seemed, or at least appropriately sized for your experience in life? And then when you, you, you grow up and you kind of go back and you think, how did I ever fit in this desk? And, and the playground seems so big, and everything seemed bigger, but your perspective has sort of changed. I think when you say yes to Jesus, those doubts can be minimized. The ones that seem so big are not quite as big as they used to be. I think it can also clarify them, given a proper, proper context for them. It's like trying on glasses. You know, you get a little bit older, and I've been doing this more and more, just trying to, you know, hold the paper out like this to read and, and then you put on the glasses, and it's like, whoa, that is literally blurry to me right now. But if I put glasses on, it'd be clear. And some, sometimes when you say yes to Jesus, it clarifies some of the doubts. It gives a proper context for understanding them. And oftentimes, it just won't happen until you say yes, until you come on into the house, as it were. And there are times when it just erases your doubts. I know. You know, people say, I've got these doubts, but I'm willing to believe and then your doubts are gone. Christ does something. God just gives, just erases those things that seem to be barriers anymore, and they don't exist. And we started with Acts chapter 9, and Paul, and the resurrection, and he encountered Christ. And yeah, it was a pretty dramatic experience, but if you think about the difference between the way he saw things in just that moment when he said, okay, to Christ, now, 
his whole life and his perspective had been changed. The people that he was aiming to persecute in a moment became the ones he was willing to suffer and lay his life down for. That's, that's what Christ can do in changing, changing our lives as we believe in him. Third point. Even believers doubt. Don't believe me? <laughs> even believers doubt. So we've kind of gone to say doubt, doubt your doubts. Belief can minimize, clarify, maybe erase. But then if you say yes to Jesus or all of your beliefs, our doubts gone. Is that just the normal Christian life? And I would suggest no. Believers struggle and wrestle as well. Think about Abraham. He was the father of many nations. And this, Abraham's an interesting character. A lot of the world religions revere him as a father and as somebody to, to, to be lifted up and, and emulated. And he was. He was a, a man of, uh, an incredible man. Just really fascinating kind of character study. But God came to him and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations when he was childless. And if you go back and you read the text and you see some of the time frame between when God promised it and when his son actually came, there's a lot of time that was spent between those two things. And Abraham, who was credited for believing God and said, Here's your, I'm giving you my righteousness. You're, you're right with God. This man of faith revered by so many, he struggled with that promise that God had said. He laughed when God said, you're going to have a son. You know, why do you think he laughed? There was no punchline there. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a stand. He, he laughed because he didn't believe it. He doubted that God could actually do that. Maybe not doubting that God could, but that God would. How in the world? I mean, I think there was probably some of that could doubt too, like, I'm an old man and she's an old woman. How is this going to happen? I understood some of the, you know, biological realities apparently. And he doubted, but he was a man of faith, the father of many nations. Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He laughed and said to himself, Genesis 17, 17. You know, Elijah the prophet, those of you who are students of the Bible, I mean, this guy was such an interesting character study as well. He challenges 850 prophets on Mount Carmel. Him versus 850. Other religious leaders up on a mountain. This is MMA going down. One, verse, one V850 in this thing. And he's saying, hey, follow the real God. And let's set up a test to see who the real God is. And many of you know this story. The challenge was to call on your God to bring fire to an offering. And all morning long, the, 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 the prophets of uh, these two false gods that were being challenged call all day, all morning long, and they're doing all kinds of things. And basically, he starts smack-talking them along the way. He says, he must be deep in thought, your gods. Maybe he's busy. Perhaps he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> There's nothing going on. Nothing's happening. And then when it's his turn to step up to the plate, he has them pour water on the offering, and he makes it completely impossible for this thing to happen. And God shows up and consumes everything. Fire consumes it all. Not to mention that after his prayer, storm clouds form after a three-and-a-half-year drought. So here's a guy who's just beat 
850 prophets at their own game showing that God's the real God. Rain starts showing when he prays after three and a half years. That's a, I'd be pretty confident. You have seen God show up with fire and with rain. Imagine for a second what that would be like if you prayed for something like that and it happened and you, you stood the test and God showed up. You'd wake up the next morning and you'd say, all is good, I have no doubts. God is real. And yet we find right on the heels of this that he gets a message from some woman saying, hey, I'm gonna come after you. And he runs for his life and he's afraid. What in the world is going on here? What does he have to fear? He's got the God who brings down fire, who answers his prayers, and, and yet some woman is some coming to get you. It may say something about why we should fear women. Men, I don't know. But I can tell you what, he shouldn't have feared anybody after that. What's really going on? And some of you know that. We read that he runs for his life. He comes to a tree. He sits down under it and he prays. Not that God would come and vindicate him, but that he might die. God, I just want to die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. There's a lot that can be said about that, but there's some doubt there. Doubt that God is going to sustain him. Doubt that God will protect him. Doubt that God can give him the energy he needs because I think he was struggling with depression and, and just not believing good things about God and God's capabilities there on the heels of this amazing thing. Life is not worth living and I have no purpose. God's not going to sustain me. I'd put Elijah in the believer category, wouldn't you? What about David, the man after God's own heart? You know him. This king who'd be the template for the one to come in the lineage of Christ himself, this one who was going to represent uh, God. We know some of his struggles, those of you who open up the Bible and read it too, but one of them that's profound to me in Psalm 13, if you read these great songs that he wrote, and David wrote so many of them, he's wrestling with God's goodness. He's wrestling with God's timing. <laughs> he's wrestling with whether or not God even hears the prayers that he's offering. And this is part of what we believe is God's word for us to live by. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever been there? Are you there? Really? This is a believer asking that question. A man after God's own heart. Will you forget me forever? Have you not seen what I'm going through? That's verse one. How long will you hide your face from me? I can't even see you. Are you really there? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You're struggling with what's happening upside in your head. How long am I gonna be here, God? How long will my enemy triumph over me? You feel like you're being oppressed relentlessly, day in and day out. How long is that gonna go on, God? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, I'll sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. Think David was a believer? Do you think he was struggling with doubt? God's goodness, God listening, God acting. Well, then we get to Thomas, and we read this passage as well. And I mean, here he's just straight up. 
honest about it. I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until I actually physically see him in front of me and touch him. That's what he says. Now, Thomas, note in this passage, what is he called? A disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. Unless I see the marks in his hand, put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe it. Do you think he was doubting? He's known as Doubting Thomas, so yeah. He was struggling with doubt. It's too good to be true. It can't be real. Protecting his heart, probably. Not wanting to be disappointed. Totally understandable. It's interesting that the freedom of God here and uh, Christ himself, if you look at that passage again, how long was it after he said that that Jesus came? A week? It was a week? I mean, I don't know, but it just seems to me that if you know one of your believers is having doubts, you just show up automatically and say, hey, I'm here, don't worry about it. It's a week later that he's wrestling with this and struggling and yet he's still there. He's gathered with the disciples and Jesus shows up and he speaks peace. He, know, he probably knows. It seems to me for all these disciples that when he first appears, it's peace and you know, it doesn't say exactly why, but you can imagine it'd be a little unsettling to see somebody raised from the dead. And it'd probably be, even for Thomas, a little humbling. Just like when he reinstates Peter who denied him three times. You think Peter was struggling with doubt? When they said, hey, you know this guy, Jesus? And yet, Jesus comes to him. It's beautiful. He meets him in his doubt. He comes to him on his time frame. He speaks peace to him. And he meets his need. And he tells him to stop doubting and to believe. And then he speaks to all of us here today. Every single one of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We haven't seen the risen Christ. There's evidence for that. We've talked about it. But none of us have. And you're blessed if you believe even though you haven't, Jesus, if he is who he says he is, the son of God, God himself says, you are blessed if you believe. Come on in. Believe. What do you do if that's not enough? If you still have doubts? Well, what can you do? <laughs> but take your doubts to Jesus, right? There's this time in John chapter 6 when he gives this hard teaching and some people end up leaving and he says, why are you still here? And they say, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. And Jesus says, come to me, you who are heavy and, 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 and burdened. I'll give you rest. You do need to come to Jesus, even with your doubts. In fact, especially with your doubts. That's what I'm trying to build a case for. Look, at the men of faith. And you could throw the women there too who've, well, for many years, some of them never saw God bring about the promises. And faith lives in that space where there are some dot, dot, dots. What is that called? Ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. Don't have everything figured out. And sometimes God does give us some resolution, but many of us await for that. And Christ talks about his return, his second coming, and he wraps up all the loose ends. And so faith lives in that space sometimes of doubt. And that's where faith can actually, I believe, grow the most. It's not something that ought to drive you from God, but it's an invitation to draw closer to him. 
It's one of the great freedoms that the Christian faith offers, I believe, that other systems don't. And what I mean by that is there is a freedom to question. There's a freedom to doubt. Some of you know William, who grew up in Somalia, uh, which is a very closed country, uh, devout Muslim country, and that's his system of thinking, and he moved to the United States, and over the course of several years, engaged in conversation with a pastor, and if you talk to William and hear his story, he says one of the things that was so attractive to him about Christianity was that he could actually ask questions and doubt and say, is God good? Is this real? Is this accurate? Because at least for his experience, where he grew up, you don't ask any of those questions. You follow. You surrender and you submit. And that is all there is. There's no freedom to ask. But why, what's the threat in asking if God is true? All, all truth is God's truth. If we see in the Bible people of faith wrestling with doubt, it's okay to wrestle with your doubt. If we see the one who is the culmination of all the promises of the Old Testament come in the person of Jesus, God himself, who on the cross says, why have you forsaken me? Why? That's a, that's a call out to God of doubting his goodness. Why? And they're not just words of fulfillment. They're expressing the cry of the human heart. God, where are you now? That's a cry of doubt. And Jesus himself from his lips, the one who we're supposed to be emulating, offers it up. And what's God's response when he, when he cries that out on the cross? Silence. For three days, he's in the grave. Death has beaten him. That's why we love the resurrection story because it didn't stop there. And that's the first fruit for when we live in those spaces and it feels like we're experiencing the silence of God. You look back to Jesus who rose from the dead and said, God will answer. It may not come now, but he will answer. He will right all the wrongs, all the injustice. It will be taken care of. And here's the proof. Jesus rose from the dead, which is why we say that's the all-compelling reason to consider Christianity. Christ has risen. That's what we sang about earlier as well. And you have the freedom to question in that. But let's be honest, even though sometimes we question, we feel like maybe we believe this, you still have doubts. So here's what I say. Be honest with God and say, help my unbelief. And we have a story about that in the Bible. A man whose son could not speak was tortured by an evil spirit who made him convulse. And this is the interaction that they have. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That's the Father. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's the tension that a believer is. I do believe, but I still got some of these problems. <laughs> I still have issues. I don't believe 100%-ish. Because I still don't see everything. I don't get it all. I don't see how it all fits together. What about this? What about that? I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's, that's the freedom, I believe, of taking that step. I do believe. Help, my over, help me overcome my unbelief. I think that's the space most of us live in. It may be a small I do believe. But that's what God calls us to. That's how he's designed us. That's what he is beckoning each one of us. So come to the altar. You know, you've come to the end of yourself. 
It's because you were designed to find your satisfaction, your purpose in someone else who does then give you the freedom to live in a way that's just fuller and it includes doubts. There's a freedom there. Now we've been sharing stories along the way. We've heard some great stories uh, last week, Ashish, and the week before that, Terry and Michael shared as well. Just people who've, re- who've encountered Christ and what their stories are. And this morning we get to hear another one. It's really kind of a funny story because I asked Josie Johnson, who's Jazz, Josie, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of nicknames, to, uh, to share her story. And uh, she was, was willing to do that. Um, she just started a new job. It was scheduled for today. So she said, I can't do it. So I asked her husband, Michael, who's also got a great story. Michael's enthusiasm for speaking currently in pu- public space is less enthusiastic than Josie's enthusiasm. <laughs> so I sort of brought down the spiritual authority hammer and said, you will share your story because I know some of it and it's just amazing and it's so encouraging as well but lo and behold Michael not wanting to share may have prayed for his wife's car to break down because it actually did this morning which meant she couldn't go to work so she's gonna share instead but I still got Michael on the hook for some time in the future so Josie I want you to come up and share your story of faith and how Christ brought you to himself I babble often. Yes. <laughs> okay, hello. So because of the discombobulation of the situation, I um, am completely unprepared. And I just, I pray that the Lord will come through with, you know, don't worry about what you'll say at those times. Um, and I've just been kind of thinking about my story. And I have like a, a blanket story that I tell everybody, oh, this is how I came to faith. And and um, and, it, and it's okay, but I want to go a little deeper into the depth of my doubt, because it's thick. <laughs> it's super thick, and my God is so precious and gracious and, and gentle there. Um, when I was uh, maybe a year and a half old, I was adopted by the man I knew was my father, and he, um, I'm going to cry, I always cry, it's okay, don't worry about it. Um, he... <laughs> He hurt me in ways that mess you up for life, make you real weird. Um, actually spent some time in jail. Um, while he, some of the, his side of the family, um, very religious, Pentecostal, horrible people. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad people. Um, come home from church after praising and worshiping this amazing God that they would tell me so much about and just bad mouth and and be horrible to one another, backbiting, and it was awful. Bring me into a room and, and, and convince me that what happened didn't actually happen. So much so that I passed a lie detector test saying that it never did. And it happened often. Um, um, he would, sometimes when he would have his friends over so that they could party, um, I knew what cocaine looked like. I knew what all of this was. But they'd be partying, and he would send me to the room to go read the Bible to the children. So there's just this weird, this Jesus guy's a freak. <laughs> you know? His people are jacked up. I don't want anything to do with them. And uh, so this father, 
sent me as far away from my king and my father as I could have possibly got. Um, a few years later, I find out that I was adopted and that there was this hope of this other father who may, who may be different, who may do something, I don't know. Um, and just recently, just maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I, I came in contact with him. My name is Jocelyn, and I found out that he has a daughter who's two years younger than me, and her name is Jacqueline. And she's beautiful, and she's going to college, and she's just going to be all of these things that I never got to be. And it's incredible. And, uh, like, I, he let me start talking to her, and I was so excited, like, this amazing, like, well-rounded, normal sister that I had that didn't go through this jacked-up life. And, um, and she didn't believe me, and she blocked me. And so three weeks later, he blocked me because it bothered her. And then um, a month and a half after that, um, my father-in-law, who for nine years loved me like a daughter and never wanted anything from me and just wanted me to be the best, um, he took his own life. Through that, okay, my God saved my life about eight years ago. So his threat has been constant throughout all of that disappointment. And he is constantly taking my heart and my hands that are so protected over myself and just opening me gently more and more to how he loves me and what it is to be called a, um, called a daughter of the Lord. It's amazing. He's incredible. And I want to introduce you, if you haven't met her before, I'm sure you have, most of us have, but to this woman. Um, that I kind of, I feel a lot like her sometimes. Um, she knew God in a way that most of us won't until we get home. See, she was in this amazing garden, and like he would come down and just like walk with them, have conversations, like face to face, I would imagine. And I, I don't know what that's like, um, but she did. And uh, let me just read you the story real quick. So, so the the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, tr the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God and you're going to know good from evil. That sounds good, right? And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And this part that catches me over and over and over again, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. And I hear over and over again that God is good. And I don't know what that means. So when I hear over and over again that God is good and that he's my father, and I'm trying to understand what it is to have a good father, 
Doubt is the only word I have. Because when you're doubting, when I doubt that God is good, I believe he's not. Right? When I doubt that, when I doubt I can run to that tree and back in 13 seconds, I believe I can't. Right? So it's just saying that I believe in something else. I believe in what I've seen. I can only say what I've seen and what I've heard. And that's what I believe. And so God is constantly teaching me and showing me and leading me into the light of his belief. And it's cool because even Eve, after all of this, it says, um, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. She doubted. She believed the lie. I believe lots and lots and lots of lies. And I don't even know their lies until the Lord's like, hey, sweetie, let go of that one. That's not the apple for you. And that's okay. He'll get me there. Um, but even in that doubt, she came through and she was said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. With the help of the Lord, I'm standing here today. A hundred times over, I shouldn't be here today. Even so much as just I was on my way to work this morning and the car stopped. You know, it just, it, I, I decided it's coming home. I can't drive it. It's incredible that God has brought me here today to be in this specific place. He's brought me out of so much darkness and miry clay. And he has filled me with so much light and amazing um, blessings that have nothing to do with what we have on this earth. And, and when I get to heaven <laughs> and I get to see my father face to face, what a glorious day that will be. So I don't know if this is what you wanted, <laughs> but it's what I have, and, and thank you. Thank you. Jocelyn is very open about her journey as well, and there's a lot she didn't share, and if you, anything is of interest to you too, and I know even part of her story is dabbling with finding other truths out there too. Uh, even in spiritual arenas, so if you, that's another thing she can share with you on a personal basis as well, so. I mean, in a sense, although this brings our series to a close, you know, kind of, kind of officially, really, it, it kind of goes on. Uh, we're going to go back to the, to the book of James, and our presumption is that this is God's word for us. It's, it's true, it's good, it's, um, it's hard sometimes, but it's, it's our food, and that's kind of what, what we believe. And so I want to invite you to keep coming back wherever you might be uh, uh, and, and, and learning uh, from God's word and from God's people as well. And, and hopefully this has been an encouraging, challenging, uh, life-giving uh, series uh, as well um, for you. So Father, we thank you for Jesse's story. Thank you for bringing her here into this family.